0: But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americans, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and
1: I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our time.
0: Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss how leaders and their decisions shape the world we live in today. Welcome to Episode 7 of the History in Motion podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Honest Abe, or Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States. We start with his background and his meteoric rise to the White House, and ultimately we look at a decision to not execute Confederate leadership. Considering the carnage and massive loss of life that resulted from the Civil War, We must ask ourselves, what propelled Lincoln to pursue a more diplomatic, less violent approach? Listen in as we discuss Lincoln's decision and try to better understand what his rationale was and the broader factors at play that Lincoln had to contend with. So without further ado, let's get into it.
1: All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the History in Motion podcast. And today I think we're we're going through one of the most written about, talked about, studied men and pieces of history, um, that has ever existed so that's abraham lincoln and his decision to pardon confederate leaders um after the civil war so i think richie we talked about this right on just how heavily uh, studied this topic is and how deep it goes so we've kind of made the natural decision of we're gonna kind of skip over kind of what happens during the war and really focus on who lincoln is as a person kind of the pretext to the Civil War and then kind of focus more on that decision itself because I think we'd be here till next week if we were, we're talking to all the details of the Civil War and, and maybe that's a podcast for another day but um yeah I think that was the, my first kind of point was just how I would just how much has been written about Lincoln and the Civil War it's just it's like it's never ending and it I'm sure it will <laughs> continue to grow as the decades and centuries continue
0: yeah I'd agree with that. I actually took an American history course in university and sadly, I don't remember enough of it. <laughs> I should pay more attention, <laughs> but I do remember, uh, the majority of that course was dedicated to the civil war and the mm-hmm. level of detail that that professor ended up going into, um, might have been a bit of a disservice to the general students who were just kind of <laughs> taking it because you have to take an American history course. But right. <laughs> yeah, uh, to your point, you, there are probably you know dozens and dozens and dozens of courses that cover just the Civil War <laughs> and not just like a survey of, of American history.
1: Yeah, definitely. And so I think we've kind of focused on keeping it to uh keeping it as light as we can here and i think i was telling you offline i was looking into uh reconstruction a little bit and after the civil war and there was an entire course of like 17 lectures that i found on youtube that somebody had i think it was at yale and it's like yeah this is this is what you're dealing with with content so see if we can do a keep it a little bit more bite-sized than that so um maybe richie i think we'll try our best kick it off and yeah tell us a little bit about uh this this famous man named Abraham Lincoln and kind of where he came from.
0: For sure. Yeah. So we can get started. I'll do a bit of his bio and then we'll kind of pivot to that broader decision point. So uh, we'll start off, you know, as we usually do uh, childhood and early life. I think it's always a good starting point to kind of set the context. So Lincoln was born on February 2nd, 1809 to Nancy and Thomas Lincoln in a one room log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky. His family moved to Southern Indiana in 1816. Uh, his formal, his former, his formal schooling was quite limited. Uh, based on what I read, it was like three very brief periods in his local schools, as he had to work constantly to support his family. Uh, in 1830, his family moved to Mason County in Southern Illinois, and Lincoln got a job working on a river flatboat hauling freight down the Mississippi to New Orleans. Uh, after settling in the town of New Salem, Illinois, uh, he worked as a shopkeeper and postmaster and there he became involved in local politics as a supporter of the Whig party. Uh, he actually won, won an election to the Illinois state legislature in 1834. Uh, in 1836 uh, he he was self-taught in law and actually passed a bar examination. Uh, the following year he moved to the newly named state of, uh, n- newly named state capital of Springfield, Illinois And for the next few years, he worked as a lawyer and served clients ranging from the individual residents of of small towns um, to his, um, I would, I would assume his more um, fruitful clientele, uh, which were national road lines, uh, where he kind of built his wealth over, you know, his uh, over his adulthood. But I think just before we kind of glaze over that, because I think there's a lot of underlying (laughs) themes there that are quite important. Um, One, He's moving through the frontier, which I don't know if people can actually imagine what that looks like and how it must feel. Um, but you know, a lot of historic, cause he's a very well-documented guy. Um, he has dozens of biographers, a lot of content that has been written about him. Now uh, Lincoln himself summed up his early years on the frontier in Kentucky and in Indiana as the short and simple annals of the poor. Um, But the hardships weren't unique to his family or his youth either. Um, Life was harsh for most frontier families in the early 1800s. It was just a reality of life at that point. Um, There's another quote from a Lincoln historian named Michael Burlingame. Um, Life on the frontier was little better than the life of an ox. Uh, But the Lincolns, he says, were especially poor. So you got to consider that he's growing up in the frontier in a log cabin, a one room log cabin. And he's able to kind of, you know, work past that teach himself law without any formal schooling. So I guess it kind of speaks to, you know, maybe some of that innate intellect and skill that we'd see later in this life. Um, yeah, I so,
1: think like, even you talk about like, that frontier time and the trouble, like the challenges that they would go through, like. Just being able to survive the winter is like step one. Can you do that? Never mind, can you become president of the United States one day? And I think, again, it's the theme of there's something innate in in a lot of these leaders that we see coming from, you know, these more modest backgrounds and even straight up poor backgrounds in in this situation. So, yeah, and there's there's a picture right there. I think for those listening on the audio, um, it's a... Just think of like a shed, basically a large a large shed, and that's and that's what they lived in. You see it all over places in Canada and the U.S. And you're like, yeah, this was a house where you know an entire family of eleven lived, and you know they've they managed to to make it work. So yeah, it's not a it's not what you would see as like an aristocratic family growing up. where like, yes, our son's going to you know live a life of politics where we would see with some other people, but a different yeah, time, it's, it's and it's only two hundred years ago too, which is even more wild when you really think about it.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a snap of the fingers on the historical timeline, right? Like, yeah, Paul, to your point, this is just, this is a glorified shed, right? Mm -hmm. It, It is a glorified shed. I also have another, uh, uh, painting actually that depicts young Lincoln in the cabin reading by the fireside. It is a very romanticized picture of what I imagine he's actually going through. Um, but it's, it's meant to kind of depict this, uh, I guess this kind of boyish image of young Lincoln on the frontier, still, you know, head in the books because he's obviously astute as we know, he did teach himself law, but the kind of contrast between, um, this kind of boyish innocence and intellect versus the reality of what he's dealing with, which is the very harsh reality of frontier living.
1: And it's a different kind of like, you know, doing your homework late at night or or learning late at night is you're constricted by light sources too, right? Like if it's a cold night, everyone's (laughs) huddled around the fire. Like you might not get enough light to even, to even read, which Mm -hmm. I kind of like this picture of just like, you know, he's got the opportunity to you know stay up late into the night and use every ounce of light that he has. But again, it's just the, the challenges laid out before someone just to even survive, let alone become educated is, um, is not something every every person back then is going to go through. And again, someone who's not going to become the president of the United States.
0: Yeah. And like even to that point, right. And we'll have some more images like later in the video. But um, on top of all of that, (laughs) he lost his mom. He lost his infant brother, his sister and his and his first sweetheart. It just goes to show you like the reality, the toughness, the the sadness that he had to endure. As a, as a young man growing up um we can move forward a little bit but you know once we kind of bypass all of that we can uh he, he actually goes to meet mary todd she is a well-to-do kentucky belle with many suitors uh, ironically I, or coincidentally i should say um, one of those suitors would actually be stephen douglas future political rival of lincoln so um, a little bit of extra spice there, you know, just, uh, just, just for dramatic flair. Um, they ended up getting married in 1842. They went on to have four children. Um, the only one would live into adulthood. that was Robert Todd Lincoln, Edward Baker Lincoln, William Wallace Lincoln, and Thomas Tad Lincoln.
1: I think it even goes to show just the the list of names you're reading off there, right. Of just the mortality (laughs) rate back then of, like we were saying, like, just even to survive is this challenge every day. And we've got what you named off: brother, inf- the brother, the mother, children. Like it, it <laughs> definitely adds up, and it's a constant challenge to to get to that point and to even better yourself. Um, I think it just goes to show when you start to put some numbers to it. It's it mm-hmm. makes things like that could be like fifty percent of the people he knew in a given time. Like it's it's well, something that, that I think too, I, right? I can't fathom. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. Yeah,
0: I, I couldn't even imagine losing that many people in my life especially over the duration of like, you know, as you're growing up into adulthood. And Hmm. uh, one of the things that, you know, I don't think we'll have time to touch on, but one of the things that I came across that I found was interesting was that um, a lot of historians kind of agree on the sentiment that he suffered from depression. Um, And I think we had talked about offline a few weeks ago, when we were kind of brainstorming about this podcast Um, was that he was taking this thing called blue mass, um, which was like, you know, a, remedy of sorts. I'll call it a remedy. I won't call it medicine. I'll call it a remedy.
1: 1800s <laughs> <laughs> remedies are, are a classic. <laughs> that's for sure.
0: That was given to people who were suffering from depression. And he actually was known for having like weird, angry outbursts, a lot of weird self talk. People he hear him talking to himself a lot of the time. He's very agitated and a lot of people didn't understand why necessarily until I guess, you know, it came to light through some sort of historical analysis, that blue mass actually contained mercury. So oh, he eventually would stop taking <laughs> it, but um, there's an interesting tidbit there in terms of uh, you know, I guess his his emotional state, the depression that he kind of dealt with as a man, b- based on all he kind of went through and all the people that he lost, and you know, uh, the remedy that he was taking that, <laughs> <laughs> in all likelihood, was actually causing him a lot of mental grief on top of everything else that was going on. From there we can kind of jump into like his entry into his formal entry into politics. So So Lincoln won the election to the US House of Representatives in 1846 and began serving his term the following year. As a congressman, he was unpopular for many Illinois voters for a strong stance against the Mexican-American War. Um the Mexican American war was from 1846, 1842. And essentially it marked the first U S armed conflict chiefly fought on foreign soil and it pitted a politically divided and militarily unprepared Mexico against a very expansionist minded, uh, U S president, James K Polk, who believed, uh, the United States had a manifest destiny to spread across the continent to the Pacific ocean. And I think that's probably a theme we should kind of touch on quickly. It's quite an interesting. Thing. This kind of stuck out to me when I was actually uh, in that course I was kind of telling uh, you about earlier. Um, but so this, this this phrase, manifest destiny, it's a phrase coined in 1845. It's the idea that the United States is you know, preordained, destined by God, as its ad- advocates believe, to expand its dominion and spread democracy and capitalism across the entire North American continent. This philosophy drove 19th century expansionist policies and was used to justify the forced removal of Native Native Americans and other groups from their homes. So this rapid expansion of, of the U.S., you know, it, it plays many roles. It intensifies the issues of slavery as new states were added to the Union, which would ultimately lead to the Civil War. But there's also this kind of interesting dichotomy between Lincoln being against the war, uh, the Mexican-American War, and how it's related to this idea of Manifest Destiny, which is something that's also kind of uniquely coupled to his life, right? Because he is kind of a product of that westward expansion. So just a, not much else to say on that, but I think it's it's quite an interesting uh, contrast and juxtaposition.
1: Yeah, and I think we kind of saw that, too, like we go back to our very first episode with Sir John and McDonald, right? Having the same sort of viewpoint of westward expansion, and I think it's it's almost this fear of missing out for all of these nation states, just trying to, to get that you know coast to coast coverage, for lack of a better term. Um, because if they don't, they're always worried that someone else will come next. And I think you know, calling it a destiny is you know one way to put it, and it helps you know when you're when you want to remove certain individuals and, and start wars with other countries, it makes you know that conversation a bit easier. But it is yet a really good and an important point as. The U.S. does start to expand westward, westward. You know, we see slavery being a very north and south um, sort of thing. Do typically due to, to climate, right? As you have slaves and in, in the north, growing cotton is typically what slaves are used for, and doesn't really work um, when it's when you have frost and snow like that. And, and going west, yeah, you, you, it's the same, right? So as those states start to come in, yeah, it, it it creates an interesting kind of issue for for someone like lincoln and these other presidents to deal with how does slavery move west because it's clear it moves north to south but does it move east to west the same way
0: yeah no 100 percent. and i think that's something that i think that gradually the conversation is going to drift in that direction so from there we can start discussing um kind of his foreign like national politics um so uh stephen douglas a leading democrat in congress pushed through the passage of what's known as the kansas nebraska act in 1854. Which essentially declared that voters of each territory, rather than the federal government, had the right to decide whether the territory should be slave or free. And I think Paul, you'll probably get into it later, but this is, you know, based on what I know at least, this is kind of one of the fundamental issues of of, of the you know, why the Civil War started. This kind of uh, this tension between federal and state rights that we can, you know, talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about later um but you know uh so this this act is passed um lincoln on october 16 1854 actually goes in front of a large crowd in peoria to debate the merits of the kansas nebraska act with uh douglas denouncing slavery and its extension and calling the institution a violation of the most basic tenets of the declaration of independence i'm sure the southern states
1: loved hearing that oh yes i'm sure they were all paying up pictures of lincoln and and just thanking him for everything he's done but i think it, it you just hit on the, the core us issue of us politics from you know independence to the moment we're recording this podcast of st- you know state rule and call it states rights i can't think of a better term i'm not a huge fan of it but that's whole states rights versus what the national government federal government wants to do and it it comes to an interesting point of Yes, let the people of those, you know, let people decide how they want to be governed. But you're trying to have a union. And if certain states want (laughs) to think differently than other groups of states, you know, foreshadowing something coming here, I'm I'm sure you can guess what it is. That's going to cause a lot of friction. And, you know, for Lincoln to come out and say very explicitly that, you know, this is an affront and this cannot happen is kind of very very different than that, you know, whole state's right thing that kind of always kind of existed from the beginning of, you know, let the states govern the way they want to govern and being part of a union where everybody comes together, but naturally things are going to change. And so again, it, it just, it boils into kind of where you can see how Lincoln thinks about these kind of issues and how it ultimately leads to his thoughts on slavery and ultimately who can make decisions on what the state wants to do versus the entire union itself
0: hundred percent. And I think there's this underlying reality, right at, at the, at, within the context of this time period and, and these debates. So, um, I didn't know they, there, so there were seven debates actually um, that happened as a part of the, uh, the, the Lincoln Douglas debates, which pretty much just kind of boiled down into, you know, folk, they focused on save slavery um, in terms of, you know, whether it was constitutional or unconstitutional to have a, you know, to have slavery between, across the different states um what's interesting about these debates though that kind of like, again when we study history um, especially in like the modern era and i know people are, like 1800s is not modern it's it's modern it is very modern relative to the pre-modern era which is very very different um this is like a media event Right. Like this is, this is very comparable to a modern day media event. Um, You have this, this kind of subtext of what's going on within the states focus, this discussion on slavery, which is, which is very poignant. Everyone's kind of concerned about it and what's going to be happening along these, all this new territory that's being required, acquired. Um, The two that come to mind is the Louisiana purchase, which Uh, was the purchase. I didn't know how big this was. I knew it was large. I didn't know it was this large. 828,000 square miles purchased from France for $15 million US, which is now equivalent to $400 million today, which still seems like a steal. It seems pretty cheap. Absolutely. Right? 100 million doesn't sound like a lot.
1: (laughs) You can buy a condo in New York City for $15 million, let alone half the country, right? And all the natural resources that you can find.
0: I have a quick diagram. Cause I want to show people how
1: large <laughs> this is. <laughs> oh
0: it is goodness. literally even larger than US. I thought. Yeah. yeah so that goes, too. what,
1: from Louisiana all the way up to Montana, but it's what, one, two, three, like almost like nine States, 10 States Yep. in there.
0: We got the, we got the Dakotas, we got Iowa, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, a little bit of Colorado. We're touching a bit of New Mexico, top of Texas. Like it's huge. It is literally the middle of the U.S.
1: That's at least a third of the continental yeah. United States mm-hmm. for and then $400 million in today's dollars top, is,
0: yeah, it's in, yeah, it's insane. And then on top of that, right. So you have all these new states that are just you know popping up here and there um, along with what's happening between, um, so it's referred to, refer to it as the Mexican Secession, a treaty signed after the, Mex, uh, the US-Mexican War of 1848, where Mexico seceded 55% of its territories. So that includes pretty much, let me zoom in a bit, all of California, um, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, most of Arizona, Colorado, parts of Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. So think about how many territories and states are popping Mm -hmm. up now in a very, very short period of time. There's questions around, there's questions around the new states that where the boundaries governance and on with all of that, where does the institution of slavery stand Mm -hmm. right with these new states?
1: And again, like we were talking, like it's a north, you know, very north and south sort of thing. And, you know, the climate in the southeast, I guess, of the U.S. is perfect for a lot of the things that, you know, Again, cotton is the, the main thing, right? But then you kind of come west and you have like a more desert territory. It's like, okay, from a economics perspective, does slavery even make sense in a place like this? Are you really going to be having met vast plantations where you need a lot of manual labor, maybe, maybe not. But I don't think that's the point, right? It's now slave state versus non-slave state in a kind of grouping of power between the North and the South. And I think we'll get into it a little bit more, but this is really, you know, when, when they talk about, you know, states rights as being one of the reasons why kind of everything kicked off is what did these states think on slavery? And it's kind of like, what it's almost like their team, right? Like this is the team you're on. You're on team slavery or team no slavery. And what, regardless of how you think about slavery as a institution or whatever you want to call it, it doesn't really matter. It's this is our team and you know we, we are pro-slavery or anti-slavery.
0: Yeah. The ideological kind of camps, right? That are divided mm-hmm. there. And I think this is kind of what it boiled down to during those debates um, and essentially what came out of them, you know, uh, Douglas as a democratic candidate held the decision that the new states should decide themselves whether they would be slave states or not and that the decision should be taken away from the federal government whereas lincoln at the time argued against the expansion of slavery yet stressed that he was not advocating for its abolition where it already existed so i think we're getting an interesting glimpse into you know the politics the tactician the diplomacy Mm -hmm. and the communication skills to to ensure that um, he's not going to bite off more than he can chew at that right. point in time, right? And I think that kind of boils down to his shrewdness, which is a characteristic that his biographers, you know, use a lot. Which is not a word that I really thought of when I thought about Abe Lincoln, but apparently, you know, his biographers um, do <laughs> kind of see him in that light.
1: And I just think it quick- goes to show, incredible. like, sorry, I was going to say, yeah, like mm-hmm. the whole like. I'm not going to call for the abolition of slavery because he knows that's essentially a death wish at that point, because, you know, the, the institution of slavery is so strong in the South. And if you were to cut that out, there is this, you know, again, we, we have a war that's coming up that's directly linked to that. But at the same time, there's a level of, you know, we talked about a little bit offline about like the cotton gin and industrialization kind of happening where throwing free labor at a, at a problem, is not the most economically sound strategy anymore. And as automation starts to continue going, right, like dealing with the ba- the backlash of slavery around the world, dealing with you know again these are people you have to guard and house and give shelter to, where you can buy a piece of machinery, and and it starts to become this really weird economic sort of conversation. And I think some of the research I was doing with Link- reading about Lincoln was a lot of people were thinking like, look, slavery is just going to naturally get to a point where no one's really going to want it around it anymore or where it's not as, as profitable as it once was. And, you know, maybe this will help us avoid a war. It doesn't end up being that. But I think in the back of Lincoln's mind, he's like, if we can get to a point where we can convince enough people that this is not economically sound as, as it once was, and maybe there's a way we can have, you know, maybe the states themselves have that conversation. But again, he clearly wants that national push to say, well, new states are not going to be. Slave states, and then potentially have a majority in the non-slave category. But as we'll see, that doesn't really work out that way.
0: Yeah, totally. And I I think I think you kind of touched on a very interesting point there. So this is a national discussion, right? That is going to impact um, coast to coast, um, state to state, in terms of what's going to come, what's eventually going to come about in terms of how we're going to deal with slavery moving forward. And these debates, right, I, I think it's an interesting point because they actually generated a lot of newspaper coverage and media intensity. Um, from what I read, it seemed like the the winner, quote unquote, of, of these debates was Lincoln. It kind of propelled him you know, into this kind of meteoric rise and got him a lot of fandom in terms of his political uh, um, persuasion and uh, how he was kind of seen um, from, from a voting perspective by the public, whereas Douglas, you know, was still on the scene, but it didn't really help him much. <laughs> if anything, it might've even been a detriment to him. Um, cause Lincoln was a great orator, uh, something that, that uh, I think many would know. Um, but I think there's a cool point here that from an historical analysis perspective is one of those themes that would likely go underappreciated because we live in an era of perpetual and constant media engagement. But during this era, these debates kind of read like modern media events. Uh, Considering the technology that's kind of being popularized and becoming more mainstream at the time, you have the availability of railroads because they're traveling from city to city to do these debates. You have the telegraph, which kind of cuts down on time to actually share what's going on from different states. Uh, You have the invention of what's called Pittman shorthand or phonography, which essentially allows you know journalists and reporters to capture verbatim what's being said at these debates, so they can transcribe them later and then you know use a telegraph to share it or you know using print media. You also have photography that's catching on uh, and becoming much more you know mainstream as well. So it's very interesting the media storm that kind of was created around this. And it's funny to say media storm, eighteen, you know, sixties, right? It's not something <laughs> you would immediately right. kind of connect, but um, it very much reads like this. And I think that's just an interesting point to kind of, uh, to bring up that there was a lot of exposure and coverage on these debates.
1: It's a technological shift too, right? I think we kind of, they talk about, you know, television and social media and the radio, and this is even one step behind. And I think like, Again, that instant feedback of information um, for the time, right? Like if you can get something within a matter of, it used to take, you know, weeks and days, but this is a matter of maybe minutes and hours where if you're transcribing something in real time, saying it over the telegram, printing it out and it's in in the, the paper the next day or people are being able to consume that live, it really changes the ball game on, you know, Lincoln potentially having to go town to town and talking in the town square to get votes. And that could take months versus I can do one speech anywhere and the whole nation mm-hmm. knows about it by the time they wake up the next day.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. And I think just like, and I'll just mention this quickly, but your point on technological innovation, right? I think we are seeing like a, a society and transition and, you know, in terms of how that kind of impacts the civil war, right, it is. There is that kind of theme there in terms of the technological shift that's happening as one of the precursors and potential reasons why the Civil War did happen in terms of the technological innovations and the distinctions between the northern and southern states. But, yeah, it's, it, I think it's a super interesting parallel. Um, we'll jump into his presidential campaign. So, again, his profile is rising meteorically at this point in time. Um, he delivered another speech in New York. Um there's so any, you know, it's, it's, it's pandemonium. It's so well received that the Republicans choose Lincoln as their candidate for president. Um, essentially he was passed. uh, he was chosen over senators who had much more political expertise and experience than he did. Um, but you know, the, the, the Republicans chose a, uh, what was the word that they used? A rangy Illinois, Illinois lawyer with only one undistinguished congressional term under his belt. And I think this is where the branding genius and tactical nature of, of Abe Lincoln kind of really, uh, shows out according to his biographers. This is, this, this is kind of the idea of honest Abe versus old Abe versus rail splitter, which kind of is really this kind of constructed and manufactured public image that he is very, very, uh, strategic about creating this idea of him being a small town lawyer, although he represented, you know, corporate railroad interests and, you know, was often on the corporate side defending, you know, uh, litigation issues, but they packaged his roots of being on the farm, you know, this idea of him being straight from the land or being a rail splitter, uh, which was much more potent than obviously Lincoln, the railroad, uh, lawyer, which obviously, you know, might not sell and kind of land as well amongst the general population
1: especially in a world where you know you're expanding west into these i guess uninhabited and and more you know not built up areas where people are working those blue collar jobs working the railroad working on farms (laughs) working in small factories working in small shops and to be able to be like hey i'm I'm one of you and, and i understand the hard work you guys are putting in i think we we do see that a lot, right? It's it's the the Washington outsider, right? Who who kind of yeah. came from noble beginnings and kind of rose up versus not coming from like a, a rich Manhattan family or something like that. And it, again, it's it's interesting to see how that kind of started back then because it and it draws you know so many parallels today of this outsider who comes from you know humble humble beginnings and can really to every man, know, the, right. yeah, the yeah the everyday working man, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just funny how that still sells and it's, you know, it it even, you know, over a century ago and still relevant. Um, But if we, if we take a look at the general election for, for that year, uh, Lincoln again is faced against uh, Douglas who represents the Northern Democrats. And uh, he's uh, he, he beats out Douglas. He builds an exceptionally strong cabinet composed of many of his political rivals, which is quite interesting move. Um, But soon after he is elected sectional tensions that have always been there between the northern and southern states or the pro or anti-slavery states this is kind of the nail in the coffin (laughs) so the election of an anti-slavery northerner as the 16th president of the u.s drove many southerners over the brink like this was the point of no return um by the time lincoln was inaugurated uh as the 16th president on march 1861 uh, I think it was seven Southern states had seceded from the Union and formed the Confederate States of America. This might be a good transition point, Paul, to kind of mm-hmm. do our best to put a nice little bow on the Civil War, so people can yeah. understand the broader context.
1: Definitely, I think I think there's a there's a piece here of just kind of discussing the lay of the land and where things are, and then we can. We can kind of slip past kind of the the fighting and the and the troop movements and and that kind of stuff to when the Union um, ends up being victorious and how they handle a defeated um, South. But I guess kind of the pretext that's important to to kind of note and We've kind of touched on it already. Is you know the North is moving to this more manufacturing. Uh, automation type of economy, and they're making a lot of money um, and becoming much more wealthy than the South is. The South is very rural with lots of plantations dominating the economy. And one thing to remember too is yes, the South is definitely dominated by slaves, but it's also dominated too by a lot of poor white people who are working on these farms for these really rich plantation owners. So it's a very almost like a feudalistic society where you would see, you know, back in like 14th century France, right, where you have the Lord who kind of runs the show, and then you have communal farmers. And and there's a level to that, too, of subsistence farming and and different things like that. So that's kind of how that economy is being driven. And I believe it was, I saw a stat, it was like 25% of the world's cotton was coming from the U.S. South. So just to give you an idea of the absolute scale of what is coming out of the South. And then on top of that, the fashion industry and the textile industry is. Exploding at this time. So, you know, 25% of a world economy that is continuously growing, so that the need for more and more cotton continues to rise. And these plantation owners are getting very, very rich as a result. And again, they don't want that to change. But, you know, slavery being what it is and how brutal and disgusting of a thing it was back then is, you can see people start to ask the questions of, is this ethical ethically a good thing to do and we see at that time britain and many other countries have outlawed slavery altogether and the u.s is kind of this more one of the few modern nations that's left that actually allows um slavery to continue so again it, it starts with this you know western expansion and things we talked about and there's a there's a kind of a piece that happens on almost like this happening is makes war inevitable and we talked about states rights and letting the states kind of make those decisions for themselves. And so before the civil war kicks off, Kansas joins, um, as a new state into the United States and that conversation of let's let the states decide because they're a new state. We're not going to say they're pro or or anti-slavery. Let's let them decide. Well, the problem is it's not just, you know, people got to get to Kansas. This isn't just like, there's a bunch of people living in Kansas that are just like, oh, okay, we'll make a decision now. This is people immigrating for lack of a better term to Kansas but these people are not just coming to just oh I'm going to set up my family business here and then I'll decide if I want slavery or not they're actively going (laughs) there to make Kansas a slave state or a non-slave state and there's this event called Bleeding Kansas which takes place and it's essentially like the if you want to say true start to the Civil War is a very violent um, outbreak um, happens over many many years where pro-slavery southerners and anti-slavery northerners are coming in and and basically fighting it out to decide kansas's future and there's some quite nasty atrocities that happen um on the side of you know both sides trying to get kansas to kind of fall into the camp of slavery or anti-slavery and again a lot of this is like we see like this is not so much a noble cause by a lot of the northerners too there's definitely a level of abolitionists who are like, we don't want slavery. It's terrible. We need to get rid of it. But there's this, we're the North, we want control. We don't want to have to live the Southern way of life. We want power in in politics and things like that. So this isn't necessarily just, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts, there's a personal kind of power move coming here. So like you said, Lincoln gets elected and who's openly anti-slavery. And I think there's a speech here and like there's many, many quotes from lincoln but like imagine a southerner and you and you hear this quote so this is from a speech from lincoln in cincinnati ohio in um 1859 he says quote i think slavery is wrong morally and politically i desire that it should be no further it should have no further spread in these united states and i should not object if it should gradually terminate in the whole union so again that whole (laughs) it should not expand westward and it should probably terminate i like to how i like how he says gradually though like He's definitely trying to avoid that. We're not going to just pass a law to ban it. We're going to kind of massage it out of the system. But again, there's enough here that enough people are spooked by this guy's going to, you know, drop a bombshell on us and, um, you know, Mm -hmm. basically pass a law to say, we're not going to have slavery anymore. And it's, and it's our whole way of life is going to end. And I think seeing what's going on in Kansas is this is an inevitable next step for, um, for the union. So the war happens. The quickest civil war overview you'll ever hear is yeah. the war happens and the union wins. Um, really the the key piece of the union winning is that manufacturing, that really strong economy really takes over. And um, once the union kind of gets into their, their wheels in motion, for lack of a better term, they, they're able to defeat the South. And now they have a South that they got to figure out what to do with. And so you have... A number of leaders um, on, this, on the Confederate side who actively moved, you know, were in Congress and other positions and said, we want nothing to do with the Union. We're going to create our own country. Um, you have generals like General Lee, who actively fought in the, U- the U.S. Army and joined the Confederates. Um, and then you have all the, the foot soldiers. These are people who, again, those white, poor white Southerners who worked on um, plantations, who picked up arms. And one of the most interesting things that I saw was I was flipping through um, some different Confederate um, fighters, and there was actually a Cherokee um, battalion of the Confederate Army. So these are Native Americans fighting on the side of the Confederacy, which is always weird to me because part of the Confederacy is this white supremacy sort of, you know, black people are lesser than white people, and I don't. I would love to learn more about it. I think it's it's just a fascinating piece of like what really drove them to get to that point? Was it a, hey, we kind of like the way things are going, and maybe if we're on the winning side, we can get something out of this, and our survival depends on it? Or was there something else going on? But it was just a little interesting tidbit that I saw as I was flipping through. So the war ends, um, and now you have three kind of Confederate leaders here that I'll focus on and just talk about how, you know, their next steps into into their life and how I was just utterly shocked at what kind of happened to all of these leaders. Like you think after a civil war, so like for someone like, you know, we've talked about, um, some civil wars, like you look what happened in China and you look what happened in Russia, these revolutions, these civil wars where they end and they end very, very bloody. If you were on the losing side, you, your family, anybody, you know, is probably not living or at the very least exiled. And you know, reading about like roman history too like when augustus takes over rome there's like a year-long purge where he's murdering tens of thousands of political rivals to really establish his hold on the country but then we look at the united states civil war and it has the most calm peaceful end to a war there's really nobody say that, that though right yeah it's
0: like you know the aftermath of the civil war um, is where there's this kind of like cleansing of all the people that you know either were a part of it, helped kind of move it forward, and I, I and maybe just to kind of level set with with the listeners. Um, so the Civil War lasted what four years, eighteen sixty one to sixty five. so, yeah, yeah. And the number of casualties, what um, I saw some ranges from like seven hundred thousand ish to well mm-hmm. over a million. So the level of destruction and death in your own country. Mm-hmm. is is mind-blowing. These, it's are, at the these hands are of yeah.
1: your at the hands of your fellow citizens too. this is not a foreign yes. enemy. This is your Exactly. This is your neighbor. These are people you are passing laws with. These are people that you've gone to war with against yeah, other This nations. is not an these external people, threat, Yes, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is like a complete it's something the US has never faced before. Um, many countries have had civil wars and revolutions but for The United States, like outside of the revolution to become a country, they've never fought against their fellow citizens. And so there is this level kind of coming from Lincoln on well, how do we deal with the Southerners? We have two options. We kill a lot of them, we lock them up, we exile them, we have a very bloody end to this war, and we say, you know, you don't screw around with us like this again. Anybody who has these thoughts, you'll face, you know, a firing squad or whatever it might be. Or the other option where it was like, all right, guys, so we this was a misunderstanding. Let's get back to business as usual. But that slavery thing, that's that's got to go. And that's essentially kind of for how things go down. So I'll give you a quick overview of fear of three Confederate leaders. So we have General Lee, who was the, the general of the Confederate Army. He was, at the end of the war, allowed to just go home, went back to Virginia. Um, he was stripped of his citizenship. But... He was still able to live a normal life. He ended up becoming president of Washington College at some point. And just, again, he lived a normal life and he, a successful life as well. There is some writings from Lee on how he was kind of didn't want to be glorified and things like that. But at the end of the day, like this guy led the Confederate Army and was just told to go home. Like I've had, en- I've had enough of you go home. Like almost like a kid who's like, go, go and time out for a bit. Okay, now you've you've thought about what you've done.
0: <laughs> go, go, go think about what you've done.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so he was actually given his citizenship back in 1975 by President Ford. So I think there's a whole legacy thing around these Confederate leaders and how the United States looks at um, these leaders. And so there's a few more in here. So we have Jefferson uh, Davis, or sorry, Jefferson David, who was the... Um, president of the confederate states and so he was captured at the end of the war by the union they imprisoned him for a few years but it's like you know country club prison right he's not sitting in a dungeon or anything like that he's he's able to write while he's in prison and and it's nothing nothing too crazy but at the end of the war they struggled to like actually put him on trial because they didn't know what laws he actually broke because he wasn't <laughs> a us citizen when he broke all of these laws he he's like i'm not a us citizen anymore so theoretically he did everything he did outside of the jurisdiction of the United States, and so now is he a, a foreign enemy? Like, how do we? What do we do about that? And it kind of like just seemed like it was something that dragged on and on and on, and they kind of just forgot about it, and they were just like, mm-hmm. "All right, go back to living your life." So he wasn't able to live like a super extravagant life, but he was able to try and you know go back to the U.S., um, regain some of his property, and live a somewhat normal life again like, till the end of his end of his days. And then there's alexander stevens who is the vp of the confederate states and he's known for making this infamous speech called the cornerstone speech and so before the war even started basically and this is kind of puts to bed any any conversation about what the civil war was actually about he basically says um, african americans are not equal to the white men that slavery subordination to the superior race is the natural and normal condition. This, our new government is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, physiological and moral truth. This truth has been slow in the process of its development, like all of the truths in various departments of science." So I like the, I love the little part at the end, science, because science has proven that, you know, us as, as white men are the, you know, are superior to, um, these African slaves. So again, that he's the one who puts the stamp on we're doing this because we are, we are better than another race of people. And that's the way it should go down. And there's some great quotes on from Abraham Lincoln, kind of taking a quote like this and just saying like, well, if you say if color of your skin, you know, light, lightness of skin is the most important thing. Well, what are you going to do when someone who's got lighter skin than you shows up? Do do they have the right to enslave you? And then he kind of goes down like, Oh, what if you say, You say white people are smarter than black people. Okay. Well, what if someone who's smarter than you comes along, do they have the right to enslave you as well? And, and you can just see that's, you know, Lincoln just being like, come on guys, look how silly this is. Yeah. This is a dumb argument. This is a really
0: dumb argument.
1: Like you're going to have to do a lot better than that. Like if you, you'd almost respect them more if they came out and said like, look, we're really rich and we don't want that to change. And that's why we're doing this. Like, you know, Hey, we respect it more, but that's not going to, it's not going to rally a nation anything. behind yeah. You. Yeah, it's exactly. not change anything. Yeah, exactly. About twelve guys who are like, "Yeah, that's great," and the rest <laughs> are like, mm, "Not sh- so sure I can get behind that." So for for Alexander Stevens, um he's imprisoned for treason. Um, five years after the, for about five, sorry, five months after the war, then he's let go. Kind of goes back to his life. Ends up serving in Congress for eight years after, the, like, until his death. Like, it just mind blowing to me. Not that only that. Again, he makes a speech like this. He loses the war. He's in prison for basically no time at all, and then he's able to get back into Congress and start passing laws again. Is it's still something that just blows my mind from kind of an outsider's perspective? On like, at the very least, imprisoned or stripped of the ability to vote, or even you know, saying, "Hey, you can live, but you got to go to to Mexico, or you can go to Canada, or you can go to Britain, but you, you know, you can't stay here." Um, and so that just kind of is the whole thing around how these leaders were, were allowed to continue on. And then and again, these are just the top leaders and people below them, foot soldiers and generals and colonels and people involved in the Confederate government are able to live yep. their lives and, and, and come back to passing laws within their own states, which again, if you That's look at how, so, eh? yeah.
0: like how that kind of played out over. I wonder what laws he passed. Like that was the first question (laughs) that came to mind when you were, (laughs) I want to Google it after, but I'm, I'm Mm -hmm. super curious to know, you know, what laws did he pass or kind of were, you know, to his name after Mm -hmm. the fact, like, was, was he trying to reinstate slavery? Like what, what was his focus those, those, those eight years?
1: Or was he just maybe just sitting there being stubborn, crossing his arms and being like, Nope, we're not doing that. Nope, we're filibustering everything. Yeah, exactly. That sounds
0: that sounds, again very reminiscent
1: yeah. of of today. Exactly right, and so it's this, it's just this whole thing, and I, I can't can't really get over, you know, how they allowed this to happen. Um, and so the the key thing though is Lincoln is assassinated, you know, really close um, to the end of the war. Like I think the last <laughs> official shots were fired after Lincoln was killed, and so Andrew Johnson, his vice president. Um, has taken up a lot of this work. And so to say this is directly Lincoln's kind of, I guess the outcome is based on what Lincoln decided is a half-truth. I think there's some stuff here where he speaks about what he wants to happen. So the Mm -hmm. idea is definitely Lincoln's, the execution is not. So there's an address Lincoln makes in March 1865, and he talks about this thing called reconstruction, like how are we going to get back to building a nation, building a union again? So he mm-hmm. says, with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the r- in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace amongst ourselves and with all nations. So the key wow. point there is he doesn't differentiate between North and South. He doesn't differentiate between Union and Confederacy. He sees this reconstruction of an entire nation, and he's very much saying, we need to make sure that we treat everybody correctly. We make sure that you know the people who lost their father, who lost their brother, who lost their husband you know, in the war, and even if they live from the South, we need to make sure we give them the opportunity to Come back and join the union and prosper in a way that you know we want to give you know Americans all the chances um, you know they they possibly can. So in Lincoln's mind, like this is a let's bring everybody together again. And so he gave Mm -hmm. his generals even directions like if the Confederate leaders try to flee to Mexico, let them go. Like I don't want anybody running them down and having public executions because I think there's also a fear of you know say General Lee gets caught and hung, he now becomes a martyr for this concept of the Confederacy and slavery. Um, and then he kind of makes a point of, you know, instead of lawyers arguing about the legality of secession, which again, it was clearly an issue because they didn't know how to try a lot of these guys, you know, arguing that legality of secession, the death of, you know, 800,000 to a million Americans, you know, the nation would put all of those resources into rebuilding and creating a stronger nation. So he definitely has this idea of let's not be cruel at the end of the world. Let's bring everybody back into it. And that's, I think kind of comes into the discussion of was that the right decision and, you know, how did it come to pass? Um, and so like one of the things when it comes to the actual execution of it is they did some things where they made the Confederate soldiers and people who wanted to basically rejoin the union, like swear a oath to the constitution and to the union, sure. but There's something very interesting in all of this. They swore that oath to the union, but they did not swear it to you know, slavery itself, they said, you know, Hey, the, we'll, I'll swear to the constitution, but I won't swear to say, I'm going to give up this slavery nonsense, you know, forever. And so it's like a little bit of a, let's just, we're, we're we just got to bring everybody together. And, and the, you know, the years afterwards where we get into Jim Crow and the, in the South kind of doing everything it, they can yeah, to make. the, the, uh, yeah. the
0: lasting it, like the, the, the enduringness of the institution, right, that would kind of be propelled and, and live into the the modern era, you know, decades, potentially even a century mm-hmm. later would still be an issue with segregation laws, Jim Crow. Yeah, you're totally right.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think the key thing here was I was reading the at the end of the war, um, the South had about 40% of the wealth that the North did. Um, there was a lot of money that was forfeited because it was essentially transferred into the bonds that were run by the Confederate government that essentially became worthless. So banks, railroads, everything was going bankrupt. And so now you have a group of people who again have lost a lot of men of working age. There's no savings, there's no money. And then you also have like, you have to think of like worker skill, right? Like if you have a bunch of plantations, most people just really know how to farm. There's not like, oh, we're going to move in and build a factory, build well, all these it's a other single
0: things. crop economy too, right? Like yes. Right. It's large. It's not like it's a diversified variety of crops that they're dependent on. It's, it's one single crop that's kind of dominating or taking up the majority mm-hmm. of, of their efforts, which is just cotton.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so you see kind of this transition after the war, where it's like, well, if slaves aren't around, we'll just hire people and pay them what we can, right? And the, again...
0: It's so crazy because like, yeah. no shit, right? Like yeah. <laughs> maybe we should have just done that in the first place.
1: But then it's like, how can... And this is where people get clever, right? It's, oh, we're not allowed to have slaves, but what if we allow, <laughs> we'll call them freed slaves, I guess at this point, they can work on the farm, but they're, they must produce a certain quota of food on a land that we give them, and then if they don't produce that, we take away from their personal stuff. And but like, and then they give them some housing as a result. But if they don't that buy, kind of they lose that housing. Yeah, still they very feudalistic, this. right? Yeah. yeah, it's it's slavery in the sense that you can everything is the same, other than the fact that you can get up and leave. But again, get up and leave, yeah. and go where? Right? This is your life. This is what you have. You have a family. You need to feed them. You can't just get up and go. And especially in the south, being a, being a black person at the time is not, you're not walking down the street and just getting another job. Um, this Mm -hmm. is again, there's still this, this most of the people living in that place just seceded from a country because they thought their race was better than your race. So this is not a, Hey, let's all join hands and say, Oh, sorry about that misunderstanding. There's this still a deep hatred. There's still a, I guess, like this it's just not going to flip over overnight, and I think mm-hmm. where Lincoln was kind of coming was okay if we're nice to everybody and we can slowly bring everybody back and show that we care and we want we want everything to be equal in this sense, um, we can make it work. But then that also could have, you know, what I've kind of written down here is some options for for kind of how Lincoln could have treated this. He could have said, "Well, right, we got two things. We got do we put pressure on the South? We force equal treatment for all." and they must have no Northern values. You treat everybody the same. And again, I do say Northern values. The North was still incredibly racist at the time. This is not, you know, it's not again, like the North was, everybody was equal. Um, there's a lot of, you know, still new immigrants coming into the country. And there's still a lot of issues with Irish immigrants, for example, coming into, um, the Eastern part of the United States and them facing a lot of racism and stuff, um, from the, from the Mm -hmm. existing population. So there's a level of Okay, do you force the South to treat everybody the same, allow everybody to have the same vote, the same um, level of representation? Or do you kind of back off and say, okay, we're going to treat everybody well, but we're going to try to get things changed the democratic process. And I think you know, Lincoln does choose the second one. Andrew Johnson has the second option there. And it really goes off the rails for about, really, I guess, until you could say the 1960s, until really the Civil Rights Act gets past almost a, almost 100 years really of just not really closing that final loop and i think where we mm-hmm. are today is you know even from 1960 to today is a heck of an improvement but it still kind of goes back to that do you force people into changing and would that even work versus trying so, to you know man. change the hearts and minds yeah. right yeah
0: i don't think so i think an institution like slavery the enduring legacy of it. And I, I know we're talking about the civil war. So we're talking in a North American US specific context, right. But just if, if we kind of expanded out a little bit, like the institution of slavery has had such a enduring legacy across time and space that when you look at it from like this, this, this macro perspective, we're still having conversations about modern day slavery, you know, mm-hmm. in 2022. So, and then you kind of take it a step back to our discussion right now. We're talking about, you know, um, the, the U.S. in in, in the, in the mid 19th century. It's so deeply entrenched mm-hmm. in that region. It is it, culturally, socially, economically, it is it, it is it is central to those Southern states, from my perspective. So. Mm-hmm you're not going to change that overnight, right? Like it's going to take, right. I don't know if it should, like, it's, clearly it's, you know, I, I guess many would say it's still a work in progress, which, you know, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but yeah, like it, I think Lincoln was probably smart enough to realize that this isn't going to, this isn't going to be a quick fix or it's not going to happen overnight. There's going to be mm-hmm. a lot of change that's required. Um, and I think that kind of sentiment gradually doing it or, you know, kind of initiating it because even if he wasn't assassinated, I don't like, do you think it would have moved faster, was faster. History at this point? But
1: yeah, I don't even know if faster is like, even a possibility. I think, yeah, I don't it know. It would either, have been yeah. done a bit cleaner. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe
0: efficiency or like, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But I think even like I was doing some reading too on, you know, what do we do with these slaves? kind of conversation was always a thing that was around in the United States. And like Jefferson even talked about it. He, he was convinced that when slavery eventually ended, he goes, African slaves will, cannot stay in the United States. He goes, there's no way that you can and have had, all, like, all these people, slaves. Slave. something like that. So yeah. Jefferson, had a lot. he, he's a, he's an interesting guy. Cause I think like he, if you read his writings, he's very morally against it. But he kind of struggles with the like, well, what else are you supposed to do at the time? Like this is just kind of the way the world works. Um again, that's a that's a, another podcast, but it's a it's an interesting kind of moral quandary that he has. But the interesting thing he kind of always thought was he wanted to actually just get the slaves that were in the US and send them all to Haiti. Because look, there's a there was a slave rebellion there. He was worried about it happening in the United States. And even Lincoln had some conversations. His plan was to send slaves to Liberia because the whole point was like the U.S. was going to set up an African colony over there, and we can send oh, these no way. Yeah, these slaves back to Africa. But then people started to realize like you had people like, Fred, like Frederick Douglass saying like you know you don't understand. We're American, you know. We, we can't go yeah, back. I don't know. We're not going back. I don't know the language. I don't. I'm not mm-hmm. African. I'm American, right? Like, I, sure, I grew up in, as as a slave, but this is my home and I don't want to leave. And then you can start to see Lincoln kind of has that thought. And as time goes on, he starts to discuss more. He's like, I can't in, you know, in any sort of thought, send a ship of people from the United ah. States and just dump them into another country and be like, bye, have fun. Right. Coastal like Africa, we, yeah, get yeah with it It's like, get, how's yeah. that going to work? Figure right. So I think a lot of these leaders really knew in Lincoln, especially like this is not going to go well, over well. And if, and if even if it does work out, you know what's going to happen, especially in the South too. I don't have the number in front of me, but I think the proportion of African slaves to you know white Americans living in the South is quite large at the time too. So there was always this fear of rebellion and some other sort of separation. So how that all came together again, you can speculate all you want, but it almost like it probably was going to take a hundred years. It was to get to a point where you could have a national conversation around what civil rights really are. Um, and then take another, probably another hundred years until all of that gets rippled through. Cause you really have, you know, people living in, you know, 1900, 1910, like grandparents fought in the civil war. They grew up around this yeah, conversation it's not of far this, removed.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this totally. lost
1: cause of, we had an idea and it wasn't, you know, I think that's another kind of conversation too, around like the South and this lost cause they talked about on how, you know, it was a good idea to separate because the North was being mean. And, you know, we had, we wanted states rights. It really had nothing to do with slavery, but then you read the cornerstone speech and it's quite clear that slavery was the reason for the Confederacy. But, and then it kind of glorifies, you know, the South as this. You know, we were standing up for what we believed in and we believed in our state's rights. And there's this level of rebellion within the United States as a noble cause, because that's how the country was created of this rebellion against tyrannical leaders and kings and things like that. So I think it's kind of deeply entrenched in US kind of mentality at the time of what kind of values that they have is like standing up to injustice and things that they don't believe in. And again, the South is, oh, states' rights. We thought, this is what we believed in, so we stood up and we rose against it. And that creates kind of this lost cause narrative that you add that into the inability for the United States to do reconstruction in a positive way. Kind of brought, again, those next hundred years until the civil rights movement where, you know, slavery is illegal, but everything else that you could do to oppress a group of people is not only around it's it's thriving in a lot of these southern southern states
0: i think it's an interesting point right like if we drive the conversation back to that kind of decision point with with mm-hmm. abe uh, to to decide what to do with the leaders and i while you were speaking this kind of sentiment uh, kind of popped in my head i know we've talked about it a couple times especially with this particular era you know the mid-19th century the the nation making projects that are going on this is this is the nation making project in in the us and lincoln's kind of uh his perspective on him trying to unify and come together and 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 create a a coast to coast nation that's integrated that works together that is largely on the same page when it comes to these institutions um I used the word largely very loosely there, Um, but yeah, it's interesting because if the goal is nation-making, right, unification, and this is a theme that I think we've touched on like totally unintentionally, it just has kind of come about as a part of our discussions and research, that if the goal is unification, then... Can we hold Lincoln accountable for not taking a harsher line of punishment for the Confederate leaders?
1: It's a tough one because part of me, again, unification is the goal, but Mm -hmm. is there a way where you can rip out that any sort of sentiment to whatever the Confederacy had was good? And can you force in some way the laws of the land to, you know, respect, um, you know, that this everybody's equal, you know, when the Constitution says all men, that means all men, not certain types Land-owning of owning Landowning white guys. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Can you do that? And it's a tough one for me because I, I get where Lincoln's coming from. And I, I I just again you you don't know like what would have happened if he took the top a thousand Confederate leaders and exiled all of them or killed all of them and then put you know, northern I don't troops. I think he in the could seven. have
0: exiled. So I think it's interesting this idea of exiling. So yeah. I, given what we know about like the Mexican American War, where are they most right. likely to go? Mexico. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and given the, the secession that just happened. Right. Are you just kind of creating a powder keg that Maybe. is just going to build up over time, right? Potentially. Mm-hmm. Because right. now you've egg- exiled them, but they're all together. They're still fomenting off this kind of idea. Mm-hmm. They're not... It's not finished. I, <sighs> Which like I think you the more I look, think nah, about to Kill right? or not, right? Like, do you yeah. execute them or do you not execute them? At that point. I think even
1: as as we talk about it too is like we're we're talking like Lincoln had a choice here. Like at the end of the day, this you know I, I'm falling into the trap of Lincoln is a a king or an emperor who has ultimate authority here. Ultimately, he needs to put every single person on trial. And I think the point of Lincoln saying he doesn't want the lawyers arguing about the legality of everything, he just wants to get things back together. And and now that I kind of think about it like that, like. If he did go down the route of harsh on the South, imprisonment, punishment, banishment, whatever you want to call it, that could have taken 10, 15 years of just legal court Easily. battles. Where yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess in his eyes, he's like, "What's the point? It's a waste of resources." And we've talked about this even um, when we were talking about Neville Chamberlain and you know World War Two coming along and just after World War One, people are tired after war. They don't want to deal yep. with it. They just want to move on. They want to get back to their mm-hmm. lives. And I think that's kind of the the mindset here. And so, you know, maybe as we talk through it here, it isn't, it may not have been even as, as much of a decision as maybe I thought it was when we came into this. This is more of a, he had to, you know, he could have gone down that route of, sure, let's be tough. But, he, you know, he knows law, obviously. He taught himself law. He's a lawyer. Yeah, he's he's yeah, worked he's in Congress. Litigator. He's worked in the Senate. Yep does he, he knows where this is going to go? And was it even really an option for him to be harsher from a legal standpoint? Maybe he could have been harsher with his words and put more pressure on the South from some different areas. But again, that maybe that is not even his domain, right? That's more of an execution side of things versus a ideal side of things that he never had the opportunity to implement.
0: That's a good point. The more I think about it, I think out of the options that were presented earlier, exile, execute, or give mercy or, or whatever form of mercy it looked like. Right. Or just, you know, I definitely think exile would have been the worst move because I think that it's hard to, it's hard to kill an idea. Mm-hmm. Very, very hard to kill an idea. Ideas that are very enduring, um, especially when they're <laughs> yep. super entrenched and are intrinsically tied to how your your segment of society functions, um, which kind of led me to the, the two last options, which would be either execute or I guess what I would call like integrate, bring them in, you know, for mm-hmm. the sake of unification. And obviously, when you think about things like this and you think about the casualties, you think about slavery and atrocities that were committed your gut reaction is always like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. At least that's mine. I can't speak for everybody. That's always my gut reaction until I take a step. I can kind of do some analysis and and I kind of think about it. And given what I read about Lincoln's bio, his shrewdness, his tactician, his, his, his what I would call this almost very balanced, checked approach to how he would say things or kind of communicate his positioning or, uh, you know, his his kind of view on things i it makes me think that he was probably better off just providing mercy at that point for the sake of unification
1: yeah and again like we talk about the lost cause happening as a result of you know this idea not being destroyed in some way and I think the where my head's kind of been going is like, well if you kill the leaders and you tell people like you don't screw around with this anymore that this idea will go away. I don't think that's gonna work. And I and I think like showing mercy I think makes sense to show like and you don't make martyrs out of these guys. Um you don't waste resources on mm-hmm whatever legal ramifications you have to do, and you actually go to the South. And again, who's going to make the call in the South, the people, right? Like this, again, this is still the U S still democracy. And if you can show that, you know, the, that the federal government is coming in and making, you're know, trying to get everybody back on their feet, which they did to some extent, maybe that shows that, you know, we are unifying as a country now, then there's the question of how does the South view African free African slaves? It's a different discussion altogether, and I can like, is Lincoln going to go down and talk to every single person, like you know, the I'm whole just point say, you just fought exactly. and died for yeah, is exactly. was irrelevant. Good luck. It took. It's going to take centuries. It's like it's
0: going to it's, it's not a minority yeah. group, right? Like this is a huge group of people. This is this is a significant portion of your of your citizenry. Mm -hmm. that is tied to this institution and this kind of way of thinking, this ideology that propelled the civil war. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it would be short-sighted to think that you're just going to kill these people and the idea is just going to go away with them. I think if Mm -hmm. anything, it's going to backfire. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think too, like like we were saying, like the north is not the, you know, beacon of everybody loves everybody. Enlightenment. Right. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) It's and again, you probably ask a lot of people in the north um, what their thoughts are on race relations. It would be like, we don't agree with slavery. We think that's a little messed up, but like, you know, do we have to integrate our schools? Like, no, definitely yeah, not. Exactly. We can't be doing that. Yeah. Like, should everybody have a vote? Well, maybe, maybe not. Like that kind of stuff, you Depends. know? Depends. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Like, I, guarantee, I would love to see some information on like what people thought back then, because it's definitely not as straightforward as I think we're making it as North is no, everybody's nice not. and, and yeah, loves yeah. everybody versus the South. Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of people is you, it's, you kind of see it as a theme kind of in the U S um, for many still. years, as if these, you know, you have these poor white people who are you know getting screwed by these plantation owners, but at the end of the day, they are still better than the most successful black person because they mm-hmm. have this, you know, what, with the vice president of the confederacy said like we are better based on science which i still laugh yeah, at every time whatever that means i, I gotta yeah. see this scientific paper that that they've created because i'm sure it's you know a first-rate comedy act uh, on whatever they've created but it's it's a fascinating thing and i think again changing hearts and minds there's really you look through history how do you how do you do it you do it with a mm-hmm. lot of blood and a lot of fear but yeah, the idea never dies a lot of time yeah
0: a lot of time you, a lot of time
1: yeah and it whatever your your thoughts might be on certain things it will go underground in some fashion and you can suppress the hell out of it and again does it work maybe but like we see even you know you look at China and the revolution that kind of happened and how mao and the communists really mm-hmm. stepped in and did everything that they did you know, it, it took generations to really embed that into the the hearts and minds of the people, and a lot of those thoughts about freedom and democracy still kind of lingered, and kind of came back a little bit too in, in China. Yep, it was, yep. and for a country that's so like, look at them today. Like, imagine we, you know, the Union had the surveillance state technology that like <laughs> we have today, right? even if they had that, you're not going to change the hearts and minds of people. And maybe the way I thought, so I People's think get this better is gonna...
0: hiding things, right? People yes. get better at hiding things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And exactly. Like you lived under Nazi, Nazi controlled Germany. There was people who were like, you know, Hey, we're not about this and we're going to find a way to, yeah. to fight back and, and go against this. So I think, I think this has been one of the more interesting conversations for me. Cause I think definitely coming into this, I was like, look, I love Lincoln. I think he did everything really well. I just can't get behind this being nice to the Confederate. Um, leaders after the war. Mm-hmm. And I think as we've kind of talked to this, my, I, I'm definitely seeing this in a much different light of what else is supposed to do? And if unification exactly. is the goal, yeah. right. I'm there with you hundred yeah. percent.
0: I, 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 I think as it's just like a, maybe a closing thought. Um, I was in a similar vein. I think that gut reaction has killed them, which is always kind of the gut reaction when it comes to things as, as this personal and horrible uh, slavery, mm. especially in this context. Um, but when you get into the weeds, you start thinking about the decision making process, what ultimately the goal was and how to best accomplish it. You know, this wasn't going to get fixed overnight. Um, yeah, I think I think he did. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say the right thing. because I don't think that's an apt choice of words. But I mm-hmm. think I I'll, I'll frame it this way. I think killing them or executing leadership of the Confederate party would have probably been a bad decision.
1: Yes. I think that's a really good way of putting it. There may have been better options. Sure. We don't know what, what was laid in front of them at the time. And I think the piece that comes back to is a changing the hearts and minds of people would have been difficult and all that stuff. But again, this is a democracy. Exactly, you've just had a country, a part of your country, secede and lose their American citizenship and essentially be a foreign entity. How the heck do you win that legal battle? I don't know how you do it. And I think being the American, you know, America's a young country; they love their constitution. Nothing they they live and breathe by democracy first. You can't just have this dictator sort of mindset come in and be like, well, for this one time, I'm going to execute a 1,000 people without having them go through a fair trial, which is right in our Constitution and right mm-hmm. in our Bill of Rights. I think, yeah, he's he's kind of, his hands are tied there. He has to go through the legal system. And again, that's just what has to, has to happen. So, yeah, I would agree with you on that one. And I'm just, yeah, my, my head's just kind of all over the place on, like, you know changing changing my mind through a conversation which i think is great because that's the main main reason we we started doing this was to exactly you know, yeah right it's not so I think easy have...
0: it's not easy and it it's yeah. not easy
1: Well, this will be a good one i think to come back to one day when we finally maybe we spend some more time into other civil wars and see how things ended and i'd be really curious to see if you know did the hearts and minds of people ever change after a There's revolution so much like interesting this interesting
0: analysis right i think history analysis, historical analysis, historical interpretation. The only thing I studied, one thing I learned from studying history is that um, the status quo, or the orthodoxy changes as new mm-hmm. sources come to light, new analysis is done. You know, we could have the same conversation a decade from now. And based on new resources, think, oh, man, we were so wrong. Right. right? And I think that that's kind of hopefully the beauty of these discussions and conversations is to never be too stuck in your initial analysis and be mm-hmm. open to um additional factors and evidence that may come to light that we necessarily might not know about just just yet.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great great closing line on, you know, why we do this and why history is so fun to study. So um <laughs> yeah. So thanks Richie for this. I think this is a great conversation and I think again I'm walking away from this learning something new and having a new perspective on things and hoping hoping the listeners uh, Feel the same way.
0: Yeah, as interesting as always. Uh we'll catch everyone on our next episode. Thank you guys awesome. for listening.
1: Thanks everyone. Thank
0: you so much for listening to the History of Motion podcast. We appreciate your support. And if you're a fan of what you heard, please like, subscribe, and share.